My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Good morning. Welcome. Most of you in here have already had a seat. But if you're at home, we're about to start. We're about to begin. And as I want to say, grab that cup of coffee because I'm jealous. Um, That's where I want to be with a nice warm cup of coffee. I know I could sit up here with one, but this thing's kind of slanted. So Um, my name's Taylor. I'm the associate pastor here at Sunrise. Just have the joy and privilege of being being up here and just being able to communicate God's word, God's truth to you guys. Today is a really, really um, powerful passage in the gospel of John. And so we've been working our way through this, talking about what does it really mean to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, the Christ. Christ. And so we're going to just continue digging into this today um, from a point of how John has wrote his gospel, writing it to us, revealing this powerful truth about Jesus. But I want to start with making a really, really bold statement right off the get-go. There's two kinds of people in this world. There's people who are really bad with directions And there's some that are really good with directions. And I'm not talking about the guy who doesn't pull out the directions to put together the Ikea set. That's me, all right? I'm talking about directions, logistical directions in the sense of physical location, knowing where you're going in this world, right? And Siri has made it a lot easier on all of us. I know that. Um, But I still believe there are still two kinds of people. And my wife is one that is not good with directions, And I got her permission to share this kind of this morning beforehand. And uh, and you're thinking like, Taylor, are you sure you want to go here? Yes, I do. Um, And the reason why is actually more to poke fun at myself because I'm good with directions. Kind of humble brag. Um, I'm the kind of guy that drives down the road and I don't hit the direction thing and say, take me there. I actually like to keep it open and see the different options I can take to get to a place because I kind of like knowing all the different routes you can go. Like, I'm like, man, can I beat some traffic here? Can I go there? Not that I'm in a rush. I think it just helps me feel like I'm in control. Um, and so you're just, you're just getting a little bit of how I roll, how I work through in my brain. I know it's like this, you don't need this, but I want you to understand that there's some, there's some things about me that aren't right. And, uh, instead of just hitting the direction and saying, take me there, Siri. And so the problem with all of this though, begins with the fact that I do a lot of the driving in the marriage. My wife does a lot of the directions. And so you can imagine where this takes us, um, Well, you probably can't imagine because we get lost sometimes. Um, 
And so this leaves us in some conflicts or some arguments, you could say, right? Like there's some things it's like, man, I miss a turn and I'm frustrated now because she didn't communicate fast enough to me or tell me where the turn was at when she had the directions in front of her. Or there's always the, once you miss your turn, there's, there's always that fun, fun moment that happens where you're arguing with each other and you miss the next turn too, right? Never been there before. No, it's true, right? Or it's like you're waiting for the maps to recalculate and it's like they're not recalculating fast enough or they've got you on the wrong road and it's like, uh-oh. And so all of a sudden now you're somewhere where you don't even know where you want to be all because you missed a turn. Which I know is funny and it's great and all, but one of the things I, I think about today is how many times do we miss our turn in life? Like how many times do we just miss a moment where we wish we could go back and have a do-over? Like we got some regrets we're carrying with us. We got some things that we're saying, man, if I could go back to that moment and say yes, I would do that. If I could go back and say no, I would do that. Like we, we all have moments that we look back on and go, I wish I would have taken this turn there. And those are frustrating moments. And what happens is it's the same thing when you're in the car and you miss a turn. Is this this compounding effect that you can continue arguing about how you missed the turn and whose fault it was. And continue living in the past. We do the same thing today. We, we make a wrong decision. We make a mistake. We make a regret. And then all of a sudden we become people who are driving through our rearview mirror. Looking at all the decisions and all the moments that we miss. Because we are continually missing the moments right in front of us. And so as we, as we see this kind of play itself out, it just leads to a life of regret. It leads to a life of like, man, what's the point anymore? We're kind of dwelling on the past and, and looking at things as if like the shoulda, woulda, couldas. And today as we enter into the story, there's good news. Because we're going to go right into this theme of the fact that Jesus has come to take care of the past, to take care of that. So I just want to read this passage for you because this is the theme of where we're going. It says, therefore, if anyone is a Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. I just want to sit there for a moment because if you've been in church for a while, you've seen this, you've read this, and it kind of loses its value. Because it's like, oh yeah, I know that verse. I've seen that verse. Yeah, there's new. And some of you, maybe, maybe you've seen this for the first time or being reminded about it in a long time. And it's like, man, that's right. That's, that's, that's why I'm following Jesus. That's, that's why I'm doing this. Or understanding this, this idea that the old has gone. He's, he's talking about a way of life. That when Jesus comes to this earth, when he dies for our sins of the world, and we believe in him, we become a new creation. We become new, brand new. That everything, all those shoulda, woulda, couldas, all those moments in our past are in the past and Jesus redeems them. It doesn't mean they go away. doesn't mean you got to go back in time, but he redeems them. And that is the very theme at which we're going to approach the story today. Because today's story is about a wedding. And a lot of us like the ideas of wedding. Weddings are fun. Weddings are a really powerful event. But what we need to understand is we're, as who John's writing to, the church of Ephesus, his audience, they would have thought of the, the arrival of the Messiah. Or when they thought of heaven, they would have thought about a wedding. Because a wedding was the best banquet of all. It was the best place, the most fun, so much joy in that. And so that's how John introduces Jesus to us. But the very first sign is what he's going to do. The very first 
first miracle in the book of John. And so let's get, let's get into the passage here. It says, The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Now, we kind of need to, I'm going I'm to do a little bit of unpacking here for you right off the get-go, because there's a lot of context to work through here, and a lot of theological things going on and truths that we need to understand, so we understand what John is trying to say to us. First off, we got to go back and look at a wedding. Like today's weddings, nothing like back then, all right? First century weddings, it was a big deal. We don't got these big cities. Um, you don't get the special invite. It's like, no, when someone was getting married in the community or the town, Everyone was invited. Everyone was coming to it. It was the talk of the town, all right? If you've grown up in a small community, you can kind of picture and imagine what I'm talking about. But if you're, if you're coming from the big city life, this is, this is kind of foreign. This is kind of new. It's a different way of life. And not only that, one of the biggest things we'd see in weddings is the social status of people. Because social status was determined by the level of hospitality that you would provide at the wedding. And we understand that the traditional sense today is that the, maybe the bride's parents helped put on the wedding, but not back in first century in Jewish weddings. They would have the groom's parents be responsible for the wedding. So they were the hospitable ones. And if anything was to go wrong in this wedding, it would create an ultimate amount of shame, an ultimate amount of just guilt, and all of a sudden lower their level at which they're viewed at by those around them. And so if the wine was to run out, it was actually to the, we would see that the groom and his family could be sued. And that's exactly where this is going, right? So let's, let's read into the problem here. It says, the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Man, the wine's running out. Things are going bad. We're thinking... We think in our, today, it's like, oh, that's fine. Just bring out the lemonade and the water and maybe some coffee and it's all good and everything. Like I said, you have to enter into this time. If this is happening, the whole wedding that would last a week, I remind you, not just a night and a couple hours, but a week, there's, this is a big deal. This is a massive deal. Things are falling apart. It's the worst wedding ever. And this is where we enter in and Jesus' mom, Mary, comes to him and says, there's no more wine which actually is a very powerful statement. We kind of look at that and go, well, good job, Mary. Way to figure that out um, for us here. But what I want to say, I want to make sure I get this right, is this is a statement referring to the fact that the old covenant between God and his people, and so the old covenant was coming to an end and had run out. But then I want to go to the next sentence here and show you. It says, dear woman, right? Dear woman, don't talk to your mom that way. See, everyone, if you're not online, everyone in here is like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. If I said, hey, woman, to my mom, my mom would be like, what? <laughs> no, she wouldn't. She'd be like, woman, what? You know. Um, but don't refer to it. But it's actually intentional in this passage of Scripture. Because the truth is, is no one would say woman. It's a very general greeting term in the day, just like it kind of is today. The reason Jesus is using the word woman is because he's trying to create some separation. This is his mother. And he's got to remind his mother and create some separation. She is invested in the wine. She's invested in the party. That's what she's invested of. A lot of us think about the fact that she probably knew and all these things. But the truth is she's invested in how the party is going, how the wine is running out. And Jesus goes, dear woman, that's not our problem. In another translation, it's like, what does that have to do with us? 
my time has not yet come. What Jesus is trying to do is create even more separation in the fact that you're focused on the wedding, I'm focused on my mission here on earth. And so it's no longer this father, or I mean, sorry, this mother-son relationship. It's actually this Messiah and a woman who has sin in her life, right? And so we see this situation play itself out. There's, it's, there's starting a gap to, to, to form in this moment. And so what Jesus is really pointing to is the fact that he has come to die for the sins of the world and that his hour on the cross glorifying the Father has not come yet. And so we're, it's painting a picture for those who are listening and watching in this moment to see what is about to happen. Where are things headed in this? And then all of a sudden we continue through the scripture. We see even more of this play out. It says, but the mother told his servants because moms have their way with sons, right? He's like, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Now I want to make sure I kind of say some of this right here as well, because this is very, very big. This is where we start to get in the fact that there's a religious institution going on here, a religious belief in these ceremonial jars that are used for washing and cleansing. And it's the reason behind this, Jesus is so intentional about this miracle. You look at these jars, and when when the Jews would have looked at these, they would have said, oh, those are the jars we use to put water in and wash our hands before and after meals, which we think is, oh, that's good. That's, That's good habits. We're all washing our hands a little bit more today, right? But what was more behind this is they did this for purification reasons. Because the truth is, is that they would symbolically be exposed to so much sin throughout the day of the daily contact of running into people that they need to wash themselves of their sin before they ate and after they ate. So that's what we're looking at here. We're not just looking at the, a sink with water, but we're looking at a religious purification process. And so Jesus is intentionally using these, referring to the fact that they're empty, saying the old covenant is empty. It's come to an end. It does not work anymore. The old way of relating to God is not, is not here. I'm ushering in a new covenant. Therefore, they fill it with water, right? They fill it with water saying, hey, the Messiah is here. A new way to relate to God is here. The new covenant is coming in. And so we see this happening happen in this moment as they do this, and which is really powerful for us to understand that this is the arrival of something new going on here. John is presenting to us the first sign, the first miracle. This is the arrival. And so we continue into the passage and we get here. It says, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first. He said, then when everyone had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. I think one of the things that we want to make sure we see here is that the best wine comes later, right? Just the best wine. And that means a lot of things. But a lot of us, uh, how I say this? We look at the story and we go, yeah, we, we, if you've been in church, you know how it ends. It's like, yep, the better wine gets served at the end. Jesus brings the better wine. We see a miracle come to fruition. It's like, this is awesome. This is powerful. This is such a great moment, man. We celebrate with the fact we, we think Jesus, we go, Jesus is hanging with people and having fun and drinking wine and doing all this stuff. Like, this is great. This is great. What a great way for Jesus to enter the world. But I think one of the things we have to remember is what is happening here. 
And it's, it's very common. They're giving us a really great way to save money. It's like serve the cheap wine first, and when their palates adjust, and, it's, you know, and, they've, and they've tasted the cheap wine, or when they've tasted the good wine, then bring out the cheap wine. So it's a good way to save money. But here we have Jesus kind of doing it the opposite way. What they thought was good, Jesus is actually bringing out even better. And so I think that's something to remember with all of us. But more than anything, as we look at this passage and we see this passage, I want us to understand something that... John uses the word signs, not miracles. That's what John does. He's not, he's not teaching us, um, he's not throwing around the word miracle, which is what it is essentially, but it's a sign, which means it points to a spiritual truth. It points to this fact that Jesus has power over nature, but beyond that, that Jesus is ushering in a new covenant, that a new era has arrived among us. And so as we see this, a lot of us go, hey God, give me, Give me a miracle. You know, show me something. Show me something that's powerful. Show me something that's real, and then I'll follow you. That's what a lot of us like to do with God. Like, hey, show me this. Show, do this for me, God. Or give me a sign and where to go. It's like we're looking for God to give us something tangible to hold on to, to direct our path. And the truth is, is it was no different back then in that day because many people would follow Jesus for the miracles that he would do. They wanted to see it, right? Like who wouldn't want to see the miracles that we read about in the Bible? And there's many people that would follow him to town to town to see these miracles, to see people healed, all these things, to get what they wanted out of Jesus. But then as we, what we, what we really wrestle with is the fact though that very few people actually followed Jesus because they believed he was the Messiah, believed that he'd come to rescue the world, believed that he'd come to save them from their sin. Very few people followed him because of that. And so we get to the end, we get to our last verse in this today, and we see the miraculous sign of Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. It's our first sign, and his disciples believed in him. That's what John's going for. He wants us to believe. He wants us to come, become fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so John doesn't just write about this miracle because a lot of us stop and go, the water becomes wine, and we love preaching that part. It's like, it's really good. It makes for a good sermon. It's like, way to go, way to start it off with a bang, John. We can get behind that miracle. But John's like, no, 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 I'm, point, I'm, I'm using this as a sign. I'm pointing you to something. I want to show you something of where to go. Because what would happen is the Jewish people, they would go to this purification process to get rid of their sin, but it didn't work. And it just makes me think about all the things that we go to in our life to deal with our sin and to deal with our guilt. Right? Some of us run to food. Like we run to food to, to cope with the feelings of uncomfortableness or sadness or fear or all these things. We, we run to food. We consume that. Some of us run to sex. Some of us run to alcohol. Some of us run to all kinds of things. And I'm not talking about idols as much as I'm talking about the thing that we go to to cope with the shame and the guilt and the idea that we don't live up to a certain standard. And so we go to gossiping and comparison because guess what? When we feel uneasy about ourselves, when we feel uncertain about what's ahead, it's easy to talk about someone else or something else in a way that allows us to feel like we're in control. And so we all have things that we go to to help cleanse us of our feelings, of our sin, of our inaptitude, of how we cannot measure up. We all have the same things. 
They look different. Some of them are more acceptable. You can run to work. I like running to work. That one's easy for me. I like just burying myself in it when I don't feel good about it. When I got feelings of, of like I let someone down. Feelings of feeling like I let myself down, that I've let everyone down. I love to put myself into work. I love knocking things off the list. Because I can focus on that and I don't have to worry about who I've hurt or where I've come up short. Right? But that's acceptable. Some other things aren't acceptable. Don't run to those. But the truth is in all of this is we all as believers, as followers of Jesus, are running to something. We're all running to something. And John is catching us in this passage, and what he's basically saying to all of us is he's like, he's putting up a sign on the side of the road saying, I know you missed your turn. I know you missed your turn. I know you're looking back at the shoulda, woulda, couldas, all those things. You're living and trying to make decisions based off the past. But I'm putting up a sign to show you where to go. Because we don't have an app that just puts us back on, back on track. John's like, let me show you something. This is a sign. There's an intentionality behind this. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah, and I want to point you to him. I want to show you this, not just because he turns water into wine, but what does that really mean? It means the old is gone and the new has come. I'm going to put it up here. I'm going to put this last verse up here just because I want you to see this. It's the same one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. I know that that is a pretty verse to put on a wall. I know it is. But I want to tell you guys something here as believers, as followers of Jesus. If you really claim to, you need to understand that the theme of this passage is the best is ahead. The best is ahead. And let me, let me break that down a little bit more for you. The best is ahead in the sense of, this is what I like. We go to Netflix, we go to TV shows, all these things, because we think they're a healthy way to rest or to decompress or to do all these things. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make funny. I'm not trying to poke funny. I'm, put me in that boat, okay? I'm saying this because that's what we do. We go to these things. We run. It could be video games. It could be anything. We run to these things. And I want to remind you that one of the most important things we see in this is that they thought the best wine was served first. So the thing that we're running to, the thing that we're going to to deal with our sin is actually what we think is the best. And what John's trying to tell us is Jesus is better. He's better. No, but we're like, no, 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 no. The best wine is served at the beginning. That's where we get. That's where our minds go. It's like, oh, this is so good. We convince ourselves of the things we run to are good for us. And they, and they can be. I mean, anyone can talk themselves into it. But what John is saying is Jesus is better than that. He's best, he's, he puts, brings the best wine out for us to consume and to drink with him. Jesus isn't buying bottom shelf stuff. We do. No, Jesus is saying, I got top shelf. I got better than top shelf. I provide an abundant life. That's what I provide. And we wrestle with this and we come to this tension and we're like, I know Jesus is better than everything. I know that's what it says in the Bible, but do I really believe that? Do I really believe that? That the best is ahead of me. 
You know, we've been talking about COVID and the season and all these moments. And I go, a lot of us are going back and looking like, oh, we missed a turn back here somewhere. Like, man, can we just get back to normal? Can we just go back to this? And we keep thinking as if the past was so great. And Jesus is reminding us in this. John is reminding us in this that the best is ahead. The best is ahead. We don't need to continue looking back. I know that's hard. I know lives have been lost. People have been devastated. Emotions are, but I mean, we have seen things happen that are forever going to be in the history books. And I'm not here to get political. I'm not here to say any of that. I'm here to tell you what John is telling us. He's saying the best is ahead. The old is gone. The new has come. We have to remember that as Jesus followers. But I want to I close with one final thought. Worship team, you can come on up. I want, to, I want to close with this final thought that's reminding us that this is about a wedding. Like this whole thing. And it's no coincidence that it is a wedding that we're speaking about. And the reason I say this is because what we need to understand is weddings were highly, I kind of mentioned it off the get-go today, that weddings were something that, we, that the Jewish people viewed with a high regard for. And so when they thought about heaven, they thought about a wedding. When they thought about the arrival of the Messiah, they thought about a wedding. And if we look ahead in our Bibles, if we look ahead to Revelation, we understand that there's a major wedding feast ahead for those that believe. Major wedding feast. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And those, and those that believe, those that really believe, are going to be invited to that wedding. We're, in, we're going to be invited to that wedding by the Father. And Jesus will be sitting there drinking with him the best wine ever. And this is what it's speaking to. It's speaking to a time ahead. You see the theme of a wedding play itself out in Scripture. But beyond that, I want to I kind of just let you see how this process is working itself out and where we are today. What you need to understand about a wedding is that you would have the groom's family and you would have the, the bride's family, right? And so there's, it's, it's different. The engagement process would also be called the betrothal. And so what would happen to initiate this process is you'd have the groom's dad. He would go over and he would pay the mother's dad a dowry, a price, right? He'd, he'd pay that because that's engaging. That's starting the contract of marriage. And so at that point, they would be officially married. They're officially married at that point. But yet it might be a year because at that moment, they get married young, the son, he's over here. He's getting a place ready. He's getting a nook inside the house ready. It's not like today we go off and we start our own life in our own house. No, no, no. He would be bringing this bride home to live under the roof of his family. And so the reason that this father is paying a dowry to the, to the father of the daughter is because he's losing a worker. He's losing someone down here that's providing underneath this household. And so the father of the son, he is providing and, bring, and bringing a gift that it would be equivalent to provide for the absence of the daughter. And so as we see this play itself out, about a year later, the son would come, the, the groom, and he would walk over to the house. He would get the bride, and they would go back, and they would go to their little house, their nook. They'd consummate the marriage, and then all of a sudden the wedding feast would begin, and there's a week of it. Now, where are we in this story? I think that's the most important thing to remember. We have to remember that we are the bride. We, the church, are the bride. And that Jesus is the groom. Guess what? 
He's already paid. The Father's already paid a price for us. He's paid the dowry. It is paid. We're in contract. You can't get out of it. It's already paid for. He sends his son, the blood of his son. And now we're in contract. And so now we sit here and we wait while Jesus gets our place ready for us. And then he will come and get us and we will enjoy the marriage supper of the lamb. If you believe, if you believe, we ain't preaching this gospel. We ain't talking about John just, just to talk about the miracles, just to talk about our favorite parts. We're talking about this because John wants to convince us that Jesus is better than anything else. He wants to convince you and he wants to convince me. He wants to convince you if you haven't been following Jesus, don't even know who Jesus is. And he wants to convince you if you've been following Jesus for a long time, but have started running to other things to cleanse yourself. And so I just want to take a moment today. I did it last week. I'd like to do it this week. It's just offer you a moment to surrender yourselves to Jesus, to surrender yourselves to him, to, call, to truly believe that he is the Messiah, that he has power over nature, his power over death. And so I'm just going to ask everyone in here to bow your, eye, or bow your head and close your eyes. If you're at home online, man, I'm going to invite you to do it too. If you've never surrendered your life, if you've never really believed, been fully convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, this is your moment, this is your chance. I want to invite you into this, reminding you that the old is gone when you make this decision and the new has come. You are new in Christ. So Father, man, we were sinners, man. We make mistakes, we come up short. And we need a savior. And we believe in the death and the resurrection and the life of Jesus. And we wanna put our hope in that. We wanna put our faith in that. We wanna trust that. And we wanna surrender our life to Jesus. We want to surrender it to him, trusting him, knowing he's good and he's going to take care of us. That there will be hard times ahead and there will be hard moments, but man, I want to surrender. I believe. I believe. Not just in my head, Lord, but in my heart. And then those of us, maybe we've been following Jesus for a long time. We just need to be reminded of what we have to look forward to. And so just remind us that we have the greatest wedding of all waiting for us if we truly believe. Help remind us, help convince us of that, Lord, and that there are people that we are supposed to bring with us to this wedding that are supposed to be a part of the progression as we walk back to the house. And so just remind us what's really important in this season, Lord, not about looking back, but understanding that we're new. The old way didn't work. You've given us a new heart. So Lord, I just pray that for all of us in the room that we could be reminded of that today. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's your first time uh, saying the first prayer there, I just wanna invite you um, to talk to a leader afterwards, talk to one of our prayer members. Man, we wanna walk this journey out with you.
that you can't do it alone. If you're online, we have Pastor Israel on there. And man, we just, we want to walk with you as you come to a greater belief in Jesus. We really do. Love you guys.